If you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, verses 19b to 31. And I said last week, we don't normally do the A and B thing with verses, but we are this week because it's a paragraph break. So you can see that paragraph break probably in your Bibles. And as we have God's word open before us, would you join me as we pray for his help that we might understand the words that we hear. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come before your word, we would ask you that what we have not, would you give us? What we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? By your grace, by the power of your word and spirit, and through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, hear now God's word from Acts Chapter 9, verses 19 to 31. For some days, Saul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord and spoke to him, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So as this reading from God's word, you may be seated. And again, good morning. We're glad to have you with us for this Lord's Day worship. Well, just this past week, on one of the rainy days, I had a very simple and very obvious thought. My thoughts are not usually very profound, and this is not very profound, but here's what it was. I thought about, in the rain, how grateful I am for shelter, for walls and for windows, for a roof, for everything else that makes up a house. No matter what the weather might be like on the outside, We have safety and comfort inside. If there is rain in the forecast overnight, I don't have to think about how to keep myself dry while I sleep, unless there's some huge problem. Now, I told you it wasn't very profound, but here's how it connects to the sermon and to our passage. Paul describes the church in 1 Timothy 3.15, so elsewhere outside of our passage, he says, the church is this, it is the household of God. And that idea of a house or a family home, 
helps us visualize what he's saying. The church is a home for Christians and should provide spiritual comforts as we serve the Lord in this life. Now, unlike many of our homes, though, which are probably mostly done, might be working here and there on on things, the church on this side of heaven is always a work in progress. It's always being built up in some way. And that's what we hear in this passage. At the very end of our passage in verse 31, there's a great summary statement. The church had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so in this passage, we see mainly through the early Christian life of Saul, how the church is built up as the household of God. That's a really important question for us to know the answer to. Every Christian loves Jesus. That's kind of one of the defining things about being a Christian is that you love Jesus. And every Christian should love what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves his church. And so we are all called to pray for and to participate in the church being built up. And this passage points the way forward, and it does so through the eyes of Saul in the earliest days of his life as a Christian. And so there are three different things I want to draw out from these verses. And the first is this. They all have something in common. The church is built up by love for different things. Here's the first one. The church is built up by love for the church that is expressed in membership. This might seem hard to find in this passage, but let me, let me point it out. You can see that the church is built up through uh, God moving Christians to identify with the people of God through church membership. Look at verse 19 and verse 26. Everywhere that Saul went in those early days as a Christian, he sought out the church. It says in verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. He did not just receive sight through God's work, through Ananias, and then stay on his own and uh, ponder things from the privacy of his own home. He sought out the disciples at Damascus. And then if you look at verse 26, when he arrived in Jerusalem, what did he do? He attempted to join the disciples. Now that didn't go as smoothly as it had gone in Damascus, it seems, but we'll come to that. But you can see Saul's a great example of one who loves what Jesus loves, and Jesus loves the church. And so because Jesus loves the church, Saul sought out the church everywhere that he went. This is an important part of building up the church because the church is is not a building. We do give thanks that we meet in this particular building, but it's not a building. It is the people who make up the congregation. And so it is important for every Christian to identify publicly with a faithful church. That is something that we believe as a church in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. That's Sometimes people come and they, they say, well, this is a lot more formal membership than we've ever had before. And that is uh, understandable. It's, it's really different in some ways from other churches. But it really is important, whether you're in an OPC church or another church, to do whatever it takes to publicly identify with the church. If you love the church, one of the ways to show that is to express that love in membership. And that happens by God's grace as he works in your life. And now a lot of you in this room are members. Some of you are not members. Everyone's at different stages 
But I hope that all of you are praying and thinking and considering wisely what God would have you do. Would he have you profess faith or transfer or in some other way join this church or another church? It is important, not only for the church, but for your own spiritual health to be part of the church of Jesus Christ in a public and even more formal way. There's a book that came out recently that really has made waves. It's called The Great Dechurching. It talks about the trend that we've seen over the past 15 to 20 years of people who once regularly attended church or identified as Christians who are now moving away. Maybe they still say, I'm a Christian, but their church attendance has really dropped off to almost nothing. Now, there are lots of reasons for that. The book identifies some that it's things that you might think about people who disagree with political stances taken by their pastors or social issues that they disagree with their former church. But the surprising thing is that the main thing that contributes to people no longer faithfully, regularly, regularly attending church is that they move out of the area. And when they leave one area and go to a new area, what's important is jobs and a place to live and other things like that. But lower down on the priorities is the importance of a church. And so this is not me inviting you to move somewhere. But if you do move somewhere, I'm going to ask you if you've thought about a faithful church in that area. Do you have a church you, can, you know you can go to where you know you can grow in grace? See, as you see Saul's story in these verses, he joins with the disciples in Damascus and before too long, because of their recognition of God's special uh, ordination of Paul, his setting apart of Paul, Saul, it's complicated to know what to call him at the stage. He, in verse 25, he has disciples who took him by night when he was threatened with death, let him down through an opening in the wall. And that's important for Saul's life. Obviously, he's very thankful for them. But I wonder, I heard uh, a pastor recently talked about friends in his life who he and his wife were considering their, their group of friends. And he said, we have some friends who we would call airport friends. And what does that mean? Do you have friends who you can call and ask for a ride to the airport and know that they will do so joyfully and not begrudgingly? And that's an important thing to think about when you think about life in the church. Those are things that we do to serve one another. I wonder, Saul might have thought, do I have basket-lowering friends? If I am under threat of death in a city, do I have friends who can lower me from the walls of the city so I can escape? But that's an important thing to think about relationships within the church. You identify with the church for reasons of your relationship to Christ, but that flows out from that important identity as a Christian into relationships with others. We love one another and support one another. If you think about the New Testament, all its instructions to do these things one for another, to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens, to forgive one another, that can only happen in the context of a place like a church. And so let me ask you, do you value your membership in this church? Are you considering prayerfully, if you're not yet a member, God's call to you to perhaps join as a member of this church? We don't use high-pressure tactics or anything like that, but we, we do want to see this church grow as more and more profess faith in Christ and join and are numbered with us as the body of Christ. So that's the first thing we see in these verses. The next thing is that the church is built up by love for Christ that's expressed 
in preaching. Love for Christ that's expressed in preaching. You can see that again in Saul. What did he do? He went and joined with the church in Damascus, but it says right away he immediately began preaching. And what does Saul preach? Well, we have short quotes here, but he preaches Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20 for his message. This is it. He is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. That's Saul's sermon topic. And in verse 22, it says he confounds the Jews by doing this, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So it's right to say that Paul's message and his preaching was Christ-centered. We want our preaching to be Christ-centered. I hope you know that if you come here on a regular basis every Sunday, the sermon, whether it's from the Gospels or from an Old Testament book, is about Jesus. So our preaching should be Christ-centered, but it's also right and maybe even more accurate to say that Saul's message in preaching was Christ. That's his message. That's what he talked about all the time. Here's how he put it later in Colossians 1, 28. He said this, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he hit a similar note. Here's what he said there. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There are lots of things from the Bible that are true that you can proclaim, and they are truths that should be known and believed, but our main message is Jesus Christ, is the gospel of Jesus who came to die for sinners. So we preach Christ. We follow the example of all the apostles, but especially in this case of Saul, who became Paul, in preaching Christ. And preaching Christ never gets boring. I can testify to the fact that it never gets boring to preach Christ. Some people look at their own lives and see that they need practical preaching of God's wisdom. Others look at the world around us and they see that the world needs a call to holiness And all of that is good, and all of that has its place. But here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. He says there, Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so you can find all that you need for life and all of your hope for eternal life in Jesus Christ alone. And so we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is our message. And if you ever hear anything other than that as the main message of any sermon, well, then come and talk to me because something has gone dreadfully wrong. We preach Christ. And Saul's preaching of Jesus Christ was not just about logical, intellectual realizations that he had, that Jesus is the center of the Bible and he's the one who makes it all fit together and make sense. It wasn't just that. That's part of it. Saul's a a great thinker, very well-trained, but there's more to it than that. His preaching also flowed out of his heart. Saul preached Jesus because he loved Jesus. And that is something that should be true of all believers because it's true within the Trinity itself. Jonathan Edwards said this, that the infinite happiness of God the Father consists in the enjoyment of his Son, 
And so we, as those who are brought into uh, to the family of God, should reflect that family likeness by enjoying Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Saul tasted the infinite happiness that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. So that he could say, all the things that I once placed all my hope upon, all the things in Judaism that I gave my life to and was zealous for, I consider those all loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. How could he do anything but preach Jesus, the Jesus who saved him and gave him grace upon grace? Saul's preaching flowed from his own experience of the grace and mercy and peace of Christ that he received, you might remember a few verses before this, as a complete surprise. He was not looking for it. He was actually actively trying to stamp it out and persecute the church into non-existence. But surprisingly, Jesus came to him on the road to Damascus. Saul literally did a 180 in his life. He was headed in one direction, then by God's grace in Christ, he went in a completely different direction, the complete opposite direction. And this was not lost on his listeners in Damascus. Look at their amazement in verse 21. They say, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Well, that was exactly what Paul came to Damascus to do. He came to make havoc upon the church. Now, the word to make havoc could also be translated as to pillage. So think about, we use that term usually with Vikings, right? They pillage places that they come to to seek complete destruction. Saul wanted Christians to be wiped out. And this word is not really used that often. It's not used except for one other time in the whole New Testament. Paul says it about himself in Galatians 1, that he came to make havoc on the church. And the only other time that's used, this word is used in Jewish writing is when it's used to describe the pagan king, Antiochus, who came to Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. That's how it's described. He came and sought to destroy God's people. That's exactly how Saul thought of himself in his life before encountering Christ. So what a change this was. As he would later put it when describing himself in Galatians, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So Paul was a changed man who was transformed by grace. Now the church is built up by preaching and by every Christian taking every opportunity to talk about Jesus. So if you are not called to preach, you are not off the hook. You still have a, a responsibility to talk about Jesus with those around you, to take every opportunity to turn conversations toward him. Those Opportunities will come your way, but will you be ready? Our preaching, our talking about Jesus needs to flow like it did for Paul out of love for Christ. So think about him. Think about his life. Even in this passage outwardly, he faced many threats and many hardships. Most of us, I'm guessing, I know it's true of me, I hope it's true for most of you, if not all of you, have never had people seeking to kill us. Right? But in these verses, Saul experiences that twice. And that's just one little window of his life. There's so many more hardships. And that's just outward opposition. We know from other parts of the Bible that Saul struggled with physical health. And he even had what he called 
a thorn in the flesh. Those are all outward afflictions. But what was true inwardly? Saul was being renewed day by day by the love and grace of Jesus. You can see a hint of that in verse 22. It says there that Saul increased all the more in strength. This is not primarily physical strength. Instead, it's a reference to Paul being strengthened by grace to preach Christ more and more faithfully. So all of our preaching must flow from an inward experience of the grace of God in Christ. So let me ask you, how is your inner life? It's easy to come to church, to put on a happy face, to sit calmly and peacefully and serenely, to even pay attention, and yet for your life to not be what it should on the inside. But the grace of God in Christ is the key to a healthy and happy inner life. Here's what the reformer Martin Bootser wrote. He said, The health and life of the inner man consists in a true living faith in the mercy of God and a sure confidence in the forgiveness of sins which Christ the Lord has acquired and earned for us. Do you know that peace that comes from knowing Jesus has paid for all of your sins, has given you everything you need for this life and for the life of the world to come? If you know that truly, if that's gone deep down inside you, then you will begin to have more and more a healthy inner life, even if our outer life is filled with opposition, filled with poor health, filled with thorns in the flesh, you can be inwardly renewed day by day through the grace of Christ. And so that's the thing that we see. Saul is one who preaches Christ because he loves Jesus. And he's experienced the grace of God in Christ for himself. And now, as we go from here, there's a, a paragraph break. Saul's lowered from the basket in Damascus, but Luke is compressing things and giving us the highlights of the story. We know from Galatians that at some point in this narrative, Saul went from Damascus to Arabia. This is not necessarily a far journey. Sometimes when you hear Arabia, you think, well, that must be Saudi Arabia way far down in the, uh, that Arabian Peninsula. But actually at that time, the territory that's known as Arabia stretched almost all the way up to Damascus. So it wasn't necessarily a long trip he went on during this time, but wherever he went, he was there for about three years. And so a few years elapsed probably between verse 25 and verse 26. So Luke is just compressing things. But we've seen that the church is built up by love that's expressed, love for the church expressed in church membership, love for Christ expressed in preaching. Now we see that the church is built up by love for newcomers that's expressed in hospitality. While the Jewish people in Damascus were amazed to hear Saul preach Christ, they couldn't believe the words coming out of his mouth. They knew his reputation couldn't believe that he was preaching, so they were amazed. But the Christian disciples in Jerusalem were simply fearful. No matter how many years had passed, Saul was still to them the Pharisee who approved of the stoning of Stephen and who ravaged the church in Jerusalem. You can see this fear in verse 26. Look there. It says, They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They thought this was a big conspiracy. They were very afraid for their safety. Put yourself in their shoes. And I think it's easy to see that this fear is entirely natural. 
Paul's claim to be a disciple could just be another tactic he's using to get in the depths of the church and find out who the Christians are who should really be taken out. Just imagine how you would act if someone who you knew, you had seen on TV as a public, violent opponent of the Christian faith, who you knew had a reputation for uh, doing everything they could to silence Christians, even arguing they should be put into jail. Can you imagine what would happen if you, that face you knew, that name you had heard before, came through these doors and joined us for worship one morning? That's, that's exactly what the church in Jerusalem experienced as Paul attempted to join the disciples. And entirely naturally, you would probably be as suspicious as they were. But the change in Saul is not some conspiracy. The natural explanation that leads to fear doesn't work because what's happened in Saul's life is a supernatural act of God. To use our own terminology, Saul had a credible profession of faith. He could say, this is who I was before. This is what happened when I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And this is what I am now by God's grace. It was genuine. It could stand up to scrutiny. And this is because it was real. It really did happen. But the tension in this passage is all about Paul having an opportunity to share this story. Will that happen? Will they just shut him out because they're scared and don't believe that this is real? Well, there is tension in this passage, but God used Barnabas to break that tension. Even though he's only mentioned once here, we should be so thankful for Barnabas. We saw already back in Acts 4 that Barnabas exemplifies generosity, Christian generosity, as he gives from land that he owned and sold, he gives to the church. And now we see that Barnabas personifies grace in practice. What I mean by this is that even in an environment of fear and suspicion, Barnabas really believes in the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. And he believes it so much that he doesn't bat an eyelash about the possibility that Saul himself, the great enemy of the church, could have experienced this grace. We can be sure that Barnabas experienced that grace himself, and so he's expectant about someone else experiencing it, even someone like Saul. And so for Barnabas, grace in practice leads to hospitality that overcomes suspicion. Love for newcomers that expresses itself in hospitality. Because of Barnabas, Paul has an opportunity to share his whole story. But interestingly, if you look at verse 27 carefully, Barnabas is the subject of the whole sentence. Barnabas took Paul, Barnabas brought him to the apostles, and Barnabas declared to them all of Paul's story from the road to Damascus up to that day. He's the one who's doing everything. He has listened carefully to Saul, and he shares it with the disciples. Every church needs as many Christians like Barnabas as it can get. And Corona Presbyterian Church needs more and more like Barnabas. Think about those in our midst who are, are like Barnabas. And let's pray and give thanks to God for them and ask that God might make us more and more like this wonderful, hospitable, gracious Christian Barnabas. David Brooks is a great writer who, through twists and turns, has gone from a skeptical, secular Jew 
Two, in the past few years, a professing Christian. And even though David Brooks isn't talking here about Barnabas, I think he puts his finger on what makes Barnabas so special. Barnabas is, in his words, an illuminator. In the world, David Brooks argues, there are people who are diminishers, and there are others who are illuminators. Diminishers, he writes, are so into themselves, they make others feel insignificant. They stereotype and label. If they learn one thing about you, they proceed to make a series of assumptions about who you must be. Have you ever met a diminisher? Some of the fear about Saul among the disciples was definitely because they knew him as a persecutor and an enemy and assumed that that would always be the case. They couldn't fathom the possibility that God's grace was at work in Saul. But Barnabas was not a diminisher. He was an illuminator. Here's what David Brooks says about illuminators. Illuminators, on the other hand, have a persistent curiosity about other people. They have been trained or have trained themselves in the craft of understanding others. They know how to ask the right questions at the right times so that they can see things at least a bit from another's point of view. They shine the brightness of their care on people and make them feel bigger, respected, lit up. Well, most of us, by nature, tend to be diminishers. And that isn't good. That's not a great way to live. But it's the way we naturally do tend to live. But how amazing is it when you run into someone who is an illuminator? Based on the example of Barnabas, we should all pray and work to grow as illuminators. We should be curious without being nosy about people at CPC. Maybe in our fellowship time, in a few minutes, ask questions. Ask questions you haven't asked before. Try to learn something you didn't know. Don't make assumptions. Try to see things from another person's perspective. And then take that and use it to wrap that person up in the grace of God in Christ. To bring them closer in to this local expression of the household of God. And who knows? Who knows how the Holy Spirit might use us if we grow in this grace, if we grow to be Christians who are more and more like Barnabas. Think about Barnabas. By God's grace, his role in Paul's life changed church history. He wasn't shut out from the, the apostles or the disciples in Jerusalem, but was welcomed in. He could have been locked out. But Barnabas, used, Barnabas was used by God to be brought in. How did this happen? In Barnabas's life, some of it may have been his natural personality. There are some people who are just naturally outgoing and concerned for others and want to know your story. And Barnabas seems like that kind of guy, seems like the kind of guy who would be a joy to be around. But it was also because Barnabas was a recipient of God's grace in Christ. So you might not have exactly this personality type, but you can grow in hospitality as an illuminator, illuminator caring for others, bringing them along, getting to know their story, and welcoming, welcoming them in to the grace of God in Christ that is present in this church. One commentator summed up Barnabas in this way, saying he is an example of someone who works for the church's unity and reconciliation. And so Barnabas, with his own personality, gifts, and graces, is used by God to build up the church. And may we all be more like that. And again, remember, all this happens in the context of opposition. Hellenists, that is, 
Greek-speaking Jews, are now seeking to kill Saul in Jerusalem. And so the disciples bring him to Caesarea. Caesarea is on the coast of Israel, and they send him from there, probably by boat, to his hometown of Tarsus. And now, after these verses, Saul drops from the narrative of Acts till chapter 11, verse 25, when Barnabas, of course, goes to Tarsus to find him. And then Saul becomes the main uh, apostle for the rest of the book. But now, we've seen, and Luke gives us a summary statement, that the church in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, Judea and Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is what we want to be. We are always a work in progress. The church of Jesus Christ on this side of glory is always being built up. And it's being built up as people like you use your gifts, use the way God has made you for his glory and the good of your neighbor. That's how we see the church built up through love for the church that expresses itself in church membership, for love for Christ that expresses itself in faithful, powerful preaching, and for love for newcomers that expresses itself in hospitality. Those are what we talked about, but we talked about them in order, in order of their appearance in this passage. But I hope you see the main one is the middle one. Love for Christ is what allows all the rest of this to happen. If you don't have that, you can be as hospitable as you want. You can love the church as an organization all you want, but it won't make any difference. If you love Jesus, you'll love what he loves. And he loves the church, and he loves those he's calling to himself who are now outside of the walls of the church and need to be brought in. So do you have this love for Christ? Do you hear him calling you to have this love for Christ that wells up inside of you because you've known his grace and his forgiveness and mercy? And do you see how it expresses itself in everything you do from that day forward? Let's pray together that these graces might be present in our church and that we might be built up in love. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do ask that you would give us peace, build us up in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and in the fear of your name. Make us more and more like Jesus. Make us more and more those who have experienced the grace and love of Jesus Christ and let that flow out from us, overflowing into the world and to our neighbors. May we be a church that preaches Christ and him crucified because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, both for Jew and Gentile. We pray for your work by your spirit in our midst and that you'd use your word to accomplish your purposes. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.